All right, church, there is nothing like the church. Last week, we see people profess faith in Christ. This week, we celebrate new life physically. Last week, it was new life spiritually. Uh, We're very excited. If you are new, here's what you know about us. We are a church that takes the Bible seriously. We believe the Bible is from God for us and ultimately about Jesus. And so we take it seriously. We walk through it verse by verse, line by line, often word by word. We're in a small little book that you can type to or turn to. You can just Google it if you want. We're in 1 Peter, that's 1 Peter 3, and we're going to be in verses 18 through 22. And and as you're turning there, let me tell you a little something about the context. Um, Peter is writing to a small group of people who are a minority in their culture. They believe and they behave differently than their culture. And so they are beginning to experience persecution. They're not having to yet die for their faith. They're having to do something that's sometimes more difficult than dying for your faith, living consistently for Christ in the midst of suffering and persecution. If someone came up to you and said, I'm going to shoot you in the head with a bullet, you're going to meet Jesus in a minute, don't deny him, you know, you could, you could just say, I'm going to follow Christ. It's a lot harder when you just say, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to raise my kids in a godly way that maybe my parents don't like how I'm raising their grandkids. But it's going to be decades of being faithful for Christ. Maybe it's going to be, I'm not going to make the money or hit the lid in my career that I thought I was going to because I've got certain convictions that don't work in this industry. Or I'm being, uh, you know, they're kind of judging me for how I'm living. For some of you, it might be, you know, actually, I'm just going to be misunderstood as intolerant and unloving because I believe something instead of everything. So the book of 1 Peter, I've told you this before, but every time that we see pastors and preachers and churches start to walk through it, it's always when uh, in that society, in that culture, in that nation, Christianity is beginning to look more strange. Before that, no one pays attention to the book of 1 Peter. And so today we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 to 22, and let me say this to begin with. Uh, This passage is considered by many, if not most, the most difficult passage to interpret in the New Testament. So it's like, I'm wondering, why doesn't anyone preach through 1 Peter? Now I understand, okay? A couple weeks ago, we're talking about submission and headship. This week, we're talking uh, about the most difficult passage to interpret. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read it to you, and then we're going to talk about it. I'm going to read it to you, and then we'll talk about it. Um, Here's what he says. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Well, that's pretty easy to understand. That's pretty straightforward. That he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Verse 18, very easy. We'll spend a lot of time talking about that. Um, Verse 19, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. It's like, when did he do that? Who are the spirits? Why are they in prison? There's, I think, 182 different answers to that question (laughs) in commentators. Then it says this. Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. So why are we talking about Noah all of a sudden? Then verse 21. Baptism. Okay, now we're talking about baptism. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Okay, that doesn't sound right. Baptism, we'll talk about that too. Why is that? Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then verse 22, you're like, okay, back into like, I've heard this before. Okay, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. This passage is so difficult to interpret that here's what Martin Luther said about it. A wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage than anywhere in the New Testament. Therefore, I do not know for certainty what Peter means at all. (laughs) 
So uh, the Bible is equally inspired. It's not equally clear in every part. Um, so I want to talk about, even before we dive in more deeply into this passage, which we will do, is how, this is important, how do you deal with passages of Scripture that you don't understand or that are difficult to interpret? And this will be something that will be helpful for you the rest of your life, because hopefully you're going to be reading the Bible. And honestly, a, a good Bible reader is often a confused Bible reader. Why is this here? Why did this happen? That sounds like something different than it said over here. And so here's what you do. There's four things that you do that'll be really, really helpful. This is what I do. First of all, you realize that Scripture interprets Scripture. So you go, the first place you look to understand Scripture is other Scriptures. This is why some of you have a Bible that in the middle, it's got the, this, this row of little verses. It's called cross-references. And those are other places in the Bible that talk about the same place that you're currently in your Bible. So that's the first thing is, you know, you use Scripture to interpret Scripture. So one of the things we want to ask is, well, is there anywhere else that talks about spirits in prison? Is there anywhere else that talks about baptism? Uh, is there anywhere else that talks about no? And thankfully, the answer is yes. Second thing you want to do is you always interpret less clear passages in light of the more clear passages. So there are more clear passages on Noah. There are more clear passages on baptism. There are more clear passages on the demonic and spirits. See, what cults do is the exact opposite. Cults take unclear passages that are isolated by themselves, and then they build entire religions and movements and denominations around them. So if you've ever heard, you have to be baptized to be saved, that's a heresy. You have to go into the water to go into heaven. But where does that come from? That comes from this verse and one other verse in Acts chapter 2, taken out of its context and taken out of the context of the whole Bible. So here's the third thing you do. You check your heart and your posture before God's word to be dependent on prayer and the Holy Spirit. So we believe that God wrote a book. He wrote it through the Holy Spirit. That's called inspiration. And he helps us understand it. That's called illumination. And you need both. God the Holy Spirit wrote the book. God the Holy Spirit helps you understand the book. And then finally, and, and, and really most practically, is this is why we read the Bible in community. This is why what today we're going to be doing is we're going to be talking about this text together in one sense. And we're going to be asking questions and wrestling with it. This is why we keep talking to you about getting in a community group, getting in a DNA group, being in discipleship relationships. The Bible uh, is meant to be understood in the context of a bunch of people asking it questions. Because here, here, and follow me on this, your theology is the answers to the questions you bring to the text. Now, I believe the Bible speaks clearly and decisively. It doesn't contradict itself. What I mean is, um, and here's, how you, here's when I saw this. I was in China with a missionary, and he said, we got to China, and we got here, and we were not prepared because everybody was asking us what the Bible says about ancestor worship. And he said, I didn't have a theology of ancestor worship. It's like, of course you didn't. You live in America. But as soon as you, does the Bible speak to this? Yes. Does it speak clearly, consistently, comprehensively, and compellingly? Yes. You weren't asking the right questions. So what happens in the church is the more people that can bring their humble questions to the text, the more we will understand those individual texts. Uh, this is, by the way, you may not know this, um, you know, in our community groups, uh, we give the community group leaders a discussion guide each week to kind of help them lead the group. And the first question every week, they may not ask it, that we just copy and paste and put on there. The first question every week is, what did you like or not like about what Kyle said? What did you disagree or agree with with what Kyle said? And we're not afraid of that question. I'm not afraid of that question because we're not afraid of the truth and we believe the Bible needs to be talked about in community. So all of that is to kind of open up how we approach this text. Now, what is this text about? Ultimately, it's about celebrating what Christ has done. 
That's what this text is about. We celebrate what he did at the cross. We're gonna see in proclamation, that's Jesus Christ celebrating his own victory. And then why is baptism talked about? Well, that's because that's, that's how we celebrate it in the church. Christians should be the ones who know how to celebrate best. That's what, in the Old Testament, that's what the Jews did. They always had festivals, they always had feasts, they were always celebrating something. So what I wanna do is I wanna take some time and I wanna look at this passage together and see three things it tells us. In the midst of some things that are unclear, there's a lot of things clear about how Christians should celebrate what Christ has done. So let's look first at 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13. Verse 18, I mean. He says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Here's the first thing. We celebrate Jesus' victory over sin. Uh, I don't know if you've ever thought about it. Maybe if you grew up in the church and you, or you've been in the church for a long time, you don't think about how strange it is that we sing songs all the time about a bloody cross. I remember I was doing ministry at Duke and I, brought, I finally got a couple guys to come to church with me. Finally, they were fraternity guys. They were, they were completely, they weren't de-churched. They were, un, they were pre-churched, unchurched, pre-Christian. I finally got them to come one time. And you know that nervous feeling after they come, you're driving back of the car, you're like, all right guys, you know, what'd you think? And they said, man, those songs were so intense. And I'm like, yeah, it is kind of scary to probably sing nothing but the blood together with everybody. <laughs> You know, you think, well, why do we do that? Well, actually, interesting, in the book of Revelation, it says that we're actually going to sing about the cross forever. We're going to sing about a bloody cross and an empty tomb uh, the rest of our lives, because it's the very center of what we believe. Now, I want you to see there's two words that are always closely connected in Scripture, suffering and sin. Do you see those in that text? He suffered for sin. Now, they're, they're connected in the sense that there's only three reasons why you're suffering or why you would ever suffer. This isn't going to answer every question about suffering, but it's going to give you the big categories. You either suffer because of your sin. And in some ways, that's the worst, because you're like, yep, I overate unhealthy for 50 years, and now I have heart disease. Yeah, I was lazy, had no work ethic, got no education, can't keep a job, now I'm suffering financially. Uh, I did something foolish and rebellious, and I destroyed my marriage. It's like, it's so hard, because it's like, I'm suffering, and I did this to myself. And some of you are there. Some of you have been there. Second type of suffering is a suffering that happens because you're connected meaningfully to somebody else who's sinning. It's like, you know, now your spouse did something foolish at work and she lost her job and now you don't have any income for your family. It's like, was that your fault? No. But now you're suffering because you're connected to somebody else who's sinning. Some of you, that's the story of your family. Your grandfather or your father sinned grievously and you or your mom or your dad or your family is still suffering from it. So you can see how suffering and sin are always connected. Here's a third way. Sometimes, and this is the mystery one, this is the one we say mystery and, and, and is the junk drawer for everything else, is we suffer simply because we live in a sinful world. We, you could say a broken world. You could say a fallen world. It's like, well, you know, kids get cancer and people die. And people lose their jobs and it's not their fault. And, and, and people struggle with severe depression and severe anxiety. And it's not in those situations, you're a sinner and you did wrong things or somebody sinned against you. Sometimes it's like, no, I don't know. I just, I live in a broken, fallen world and some, for some reason this is now happening to me. So, so the reason we talk about these things is because the Bible is real about suffering but says your greatest problem is not your suffering but your sin. That's a big deal because most people think their greatest problem is some type of suffering they're going through. 
It's like, well, you know, you ask me, what's their greatest problem? Well, I don't have enough money. I don't like my job. I don't like my spouse. I don't like my city. Well, here's what's interesting. Most people think their greatest problem is outside of them and the solution is inside of them. So, you know, you think, oh, here's the great, my problem, my problem is my husband or my problem is my wife. My problem is my boss. My problem is my home. My problem is my job. Well, that's all outside of you. Isn't that convenient that the problem would be outside of you? Uh, then, but then most people think the solution, and this is what you've been lied to all your life, and sometimes by parents, certainly by society, that the solution is inside of you. I know what the solution is. I just need to think about this more. I just need to, I just need to read another self-development book. I just need to practice mindfulness. I, I need to do something, and then I will somehow be the solution to the problem, which is outside of me. And the Bible completely inverts that and reverses it and says, actually, <laughs> the problem is inside of you. It's your internal resistance and rebellion toward God. That's your greatest problem. And the solution has nothing to do with you. You can't find it yourself. That the solution happened 2,000 years ago in Jesus Christ dying for your sins in your place. And that's your greatest problem. And it may not sound loving at first, but it is. Because we can't tell you that all of your other problems of suffering can be fixed in this life, but we can promise you on the authority of Scripture that your problem with sin can be taken care of at the cross. And that's the power of the gospel. So look, he goes on. There's so much, this, this thing is chock full of gospel truth. Here's what he says again in verse 18. For Christ suffered once for sins. What Christ did is he paid for sins and it was full and it was final. That's really important. Because here's what will happen. People sin and then they try to pay for their sin. And I'll tell you how. People think that they can pay for their sin by feeling really bad about it. You can't feel bad enough for your sin for you to be forgiven. You can't ugly cry hard enough. You can't confess your sin to everybody you know enough. There's a, there's a hymn, uh, an old hymn called Rock of Ages. And in this hymn, the, the song, songwriter writes this. Not the labors of my hands could fulfill the law's demands. There's nothing I can do. Could my zeal, no respite, no. Look at this. Could my tears forever flow? If I just cried about what I did all the time and I felt really, really bad, and I did what celebrities do, which is I went on Oprah and I told her. She's the high priestess of our nation. People go on her to confess their sins. And, and could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. So it's like the first thing you know is, well, you can't feel bad enough. That's not, now that that leads you to look to the cross and to repentance and faith, yes. But by itself, feeling bad uh, isn't enough. For some people, it's like, well, I'm going to do a lot of good. And it looks a lot different. For some people, it's like, well, I'm just going to serve a lot of other people. I messed up as a father, or I messed up as a grandfather, or I messed up as a mom. or I'm a, So I'm going to spend the rest of my life serving other people. Well, that, praise God for that, but that's not going to help you in your relationship with God. There's the millennial version of this. I'm going to recycle and buy fair trade coffee. <laughs> and go on a short-term mission trip with Habitat for Humanity. That's what I'm going to do, and therefore I'm going to feel better about myself. Sometimes people think, well, here, I'll go get rehabilitated, and praise God for that too. I'll, I'll choose therapy. 
It's like we're not against therapy, but your main problem is not therapeutic, but theological. Your main problem is not that you're sick. You may be sick, you may have mental illness, but your main problem is not that you're sick, it's that you're sinful. And so th these are huge realities. So people will try to do good, they will try to feel bad, uh, they will try to find religion. And, and what we wanna be so clear here is, is Sometimes people think of church as the place you go to kind of work on your life to get all better so that God will love you. No, it's the place you go to confess who you are, how much you need Christ, and that you are bankrupt spiritually and need Christ to save you. That, that's, that's the heart of Christianity. So he says, Christ suffered once for all, and then it, it's, it just keeps getting more and more, in a good way, in a biblical way, but it gets more and more offensive. Here's what it says. Christ suffered once for sins. Oh, guess what? The righteous for the unrighteous. Here's what he's saying. Jesus Christ is righteous. That means he's the only good man. That means he's perfect. That means he's sinless. If you wondered, why did Jesus have to live 33 years? Why didn't he come down and die on the weekend? Why did he have to be a young man? Why did he have to be an adolescent? Why did he have to be a grown man? Why did he have to hit 30, which was the age of maturity and culture? Because you failed at every season of life and he had to fulfill the laws demanded every season of life. That's why Jesus' life is as important as Jesus' death. But I think that part is less offensive, that Jesus Christ lived a perfect life, than that you are unrighteous. Here's what it means that you are unrighteous. It means that you are not a good person. Some of you that, I mean, okay, you might be a good person compared to other people. You're not a good person to God. And here's how you compare yourself to other people, right? This is what we all do. They're driving too fast or they're driving too slow because they're driving not my speed, right? What are people who are in better shape than you? They take working out too seriously, right? Who are people that are in worse shape than you? People who need to get in shape, right? It's like, that's what we do. It's like we, we, we put ourselves as if we're the goal. And listen, and I don't quote Nietzsche a lot, but I'm quoting him two weeks in a row. Frederick Nietzsche, because it's interesting, because he was such a critic of Christianity, sometimes your critics become your best coaches. He, he, he said of Christians, and particularly he said, um, yeah, particularly of Christians, he said, um, most men are not good men, they're just cowards. They want to be bad, but they're afraid to be bad. Something to think about for a long time. He's basically saying, look to your fantasy life. And you, what you'll find in your fantasy life, both men and women, is you'll usually find two things that are out of control, your sexuality and your anger. Those two areas of your life, that's normally your fantasy life will be controlled by those two areas. And what Nietzsche's saying, I think is correct, is you're not a good person. You think you're a good person, so you can feel good about yourself. The truth is, you're actually worse. You're just a coward. You want to do bad, but you're afraid of what other people will think. A good person is somebody who knows what is bad, but wants to do good, and could do bad, but chooses to do good. This is why, I mean, people are so tough on Tiger Woods, right, when he did that? When he, when he had that whole scandal, and, and believe me, it was completely, utterly, totally wrong. But most people are like, oh, he's terrible. It's like, you don't even have those kind of opportunities. <laughs> right? I would never. It's like, yeah, because you don't have people at the end of 18 excited to see you every time. Because you don't have millions and millions of dollars. Because you don't have a God complex where you were the greatest athlete and most recognized face on the world. But if you start thinking you're better than Tiger Woods, you're in a bad place. Like, one of, the t one of the problems with reading history is most people read history as the victim or the hero. It's like you should, for your own health and well-being, you should never read history as the victim or the hero. Like you, you either read, so people read, you know, the, the history of the Holocaust and they think of themselves as a victim. 
Like I would have been, you know, or they think of themselves as a hero. I would have been Schindler. You definitely would not have been Schindler. In a room this size, zero of you would have been Schindler. It's like so humbling to realize that. It's actually best to read it and go, oh my goodness, that's most people just got in line and did it. And you read some of the stories, and you read stories about guys who they would make, um, when they would bring the Jews in, they would bring them in on these massive carts. And when they would do it is, if it was freezing in the winter, they would all freeze on the outside and half the Jews would die on the way there. And if it was summer, all the Jews would die on the inside. And then they would get to these concentration camps. And when you get to a concentration camp, don't think like a camp, think a city. These were massive. And when you get to the concentration camp, they would make you all day carry bags of salt, 100 pound bags of salt from one part of the camp to the other part of the camp. And there was no purpose, right? That's the whole idea, it's meaningless, it's mindless. And here's the scariest part of that, if you read the diaries, if you read the journals, if you read the historical documents, the guards liked it. It's like, what kind of, what, what is inside of us that people who are not very different than you could enjoy letting other people do that? And I think what happens for most of us is we use the best parts of us to hide the worst parts of us. It's one of the advantages of having lots of money. You can isolate yourself. It's one of the advantages of having a great personality. It's one of the advantages of being very competent in one area. Maybe if I'm very competent in one area, they won't ask me about all these other areas. And you won't understand the gospel until you realize that you are a sinner justly deserving God's judgment. Tim Keller, who's a former pastor in New York City, he said that revival happens when the doctrines of sin and grace are felt and experienced in the human heart when you realize you will feel closest to Christ and love the gospel most when you realize you are first and foremost a sinner. So he says all that, and then he says, here's the, here's the goal. He says the goal is found in verse 18, if we just go back to it. He says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Here's the goal. Here's the goal of the gospel, that he might bring us to God. Here's what sin does. Sin always separates. You know this. This is why you are separated from yourself. And you know that every January 1st when you try to set goals. Wouldn't it be great if you just like, all right, here's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to yell at my spouse anymore. I'm not going to drink as much. I'm going to eat healthier. I'm going to start working out. I'm going I'm to you know, work hard at work and get a good promote. It's like, what do you do? It's like three weeks, by the Super Bowl, you failed. <laughs> and that's because it's like, wouldn't it be great if you could just tell yourself what to do and you would do it? But you don't. It's because you're separated. It's because you have, you have a con, conflicting desires because of sinfulness. What separates you from yourself, it separates you from each other. I mean, how many of you, your family, like especially your extended family, it's like what defines it is that it has been, the relationships in that family have been separated by sin. You're the spiteful bunch that has to meet for Thanksgiving dinner. It's like, you know, you don't like your uncle and your, you know, your aunt doesn't like your grandmother and it's just like, and it's like the whole, it goes back years and it's all a mess and nobody wants to talk about anything. What is that? That's sin separating people. And I, and I talk about it on those levels because sin separates us from God, but that's because we're so spiritually unaware, we don't even realize it. And what the cross did was bring us together from, with God. See, see what, what we celebrate in the gospel are the events of Christ 
his life, his death, his resurrection, but we also talk about the results of those events. So it's like, well, what happened because of what Christ did? Well, here's a couple things. Uh, you're adopted into God's family. Uh, you escape the wrath of God in hell. Um, you're forgiven of all your sins. Um, you're gonna get to go to heaven forever. Uh, you're gonna get a new body. You're given a righteousness outside of you. But most people stop there. See, the, this verse says that all of the results of the gospel are means to a greater end. And the greater end is to be with God. So, I mean, think about it this way. Why, if you, say you did something against one of your good friends or against your spouse and you sinned grievously, and it was wrong, it was clearly wrong, and you want your spouse or you want your friend to forgive you. Why would you want your friend to forgive you? Because you want them back. That's, forgiveness is, why do I want God to forgive me? Because I want God. Well, why would I want, it's like everybody wants forgiveness. Don't think it's Christian to want to be forgiven. Don't think it's Christian to want to go to heaven. Don't think it's Christian to want to have a new body. It's like none of that's Christian. That's human. Christian is, gospel is, I want those things because I want to enjoy God forever and that's what it's going to take. I'm going to need a new body with all five senses and all of my energy if I'm going to worship God. I'm going to need to be forgiven so I can have a real relationship with God. I'm going to need a perfect righteousness so that I can relate right to God. I am adopted into God's family so that now he will treat me not just as a creature, because he created me, but he's actually going to treat, treat me as a son. One of, one of the most diagnostic questions you can ask yourself, and maybe talk about it as a community group, is if you could go to heaven and all your sins were forgiven and all, you had all the sin, sinless pleasures that were sinless, and, uh, and all your family and friends are there, and you have a new body, and you're going to live forever, and God's not there, is that okay? I think so many Christians maybe not, wouldn't say it out loud, but might say yes. And, and, and the gospel is what connects us and brings us back to God. That's the first thing. We celebrate his victory over sin because it connects us back to God. Secondly, we, re- we celebrate Jesus' victory over Satan in the spiritual world. So there are two things that are taught. There, well, there are many different elements, I should say, but when you look at the cross, it's like looking at a diamond, and depending how the sh- uh, light shines through, you can see it a little differently. Um, the main way the Bible talks about the cross is Jesus paying the penalty of sin, but another way that it's talked about is what's the theological term, Christus Victor, which is Jesus' victory over Satan and evil, over the demonic and over the devil, and that's what this is talking about. Here's what it says. In which he, that's Jesus, went and proclaimed, it doesn't say he proclaimed the gospel, he's going to proclaim his victory, and proclaimed to the spirits, now the reason we, we, we believe, and again, that some, of the, some of what I'm going to tell you here is debated, this is a difficult text, um, but if you have questions about this or you want to know more, your community group leader would love to talk to you about all of this, okay? <laughs> um, but he said this, in which he went and he proclaimed to the spirits, um, I believe that is, that is demonic spirits. And nowhere else in the Bible is spirits mentioned and it talk about humans. Uh, but I believe it's in the book of Jude where spirits are mentioned and we're also told they're kept in prison, which is another way to talk about um, the spiritual world. It's another way to talk about hell. It says this, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits of prison, the first person to celebrate the victory of Christ, the penalty of sin being uh, taken and the power of Satan being destroyed was Jesus himself. It says this, because they formally did not obey 
when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. I'm going to skip over the next verse because it's about baptism. We'll come back to it. Verse 22, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. The, the reason that I believe this is talking about the demonic is because in verse 19 and then again in verse 22, if you look there, it's talking about angels, it's talking about spirits. Um, I think the big idea in this passage, even as you look back to the time of Noah, is that there is an invisible war, war and an invisible world. That Christianity is a supernatural and a spiritual religion and you actually have a spiritual enemy. And that's too many people think, well, I'm not going to think at all about the devil. I'm not going to think at all about uh, angels and demons. It's like, I'm just going to read my Bible, repent, and pray. It's like, not good enough. You cannot look at the ministry of Jesus Christ and say the demonic is not real. Jesus is constantly and consistently dealing with the demonic. Here's what C.S. Lewis says. He says there's two extremes. He says extreme one is to never think about him. And, and, and just to not realize, wait a second, maybe, that, maybe that's playing an issue in my marriage. And that's interesting because what we think about, side note here, there's the ordinary demonic and the extraordinary demonic. When I say demonic, you think about the extra extraordinary demonic. You think about seeing things. You think about people's heads turning around. You think about the extraordinary demonic, okay? The, the ordinary demonic says, don't be bitter lest Satan get a hand. Huh? Is it, is it demonic to be bitter? Yes. Interesting, 1 Corinthians 7 says that you should have frequent sex with your spouse lest Satan get in between you. Interesting. Couples that are not sexually active, married couples, over time, that's actually, the Bible would call that the ordinary demonic. Somebody's like, I need to read the Bible more. Yes, you do. Um, so, um, it, so there's the ordinary demonic, there's the extraordinary demonic. Um, so he says, on one level, the, the foolish people say, uh, I don't need to think about the demonic. And then on the other, and, and that's half of Christians. And then the other half is, uh, everything is demonic. And that's the crazy charismatics, and we love them, okay? Um, but but that's, that's the, 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 the devil made me eat the donut. It's like, no, you wanted to eat the donut, okay? That's what happened there. Um, but what, what, what the idea is, is that you actually have three enemies. You have an, and this, is, this will explain a lot of your life. You have an internal enemy, that's your flesh. That's your internal resistance to God, his ways, his will. You have an external enemy, that's the world, it's value system. And then you have a spiritual enemy, that's Satan. So you think about it, well, it's like, how does temptation work? Well, my internal flesh wants something external in the world, and Satan uses that to tempt me. And so th this is a real thing that we want to know about. It's also telling us, when it says spirits in prison, it's telling us um, another thing that's even more offensive than the idea that demons and the devil and Satan exist. It's that hell is a real place. It's like, I know we shouldn't talk about such things. I know that's completely intolerant. Uh, but but I, I know that many pastors, many preachers, many churches never talk about hell. Here's what you're going to find. Churches that talk about the cross talk about hell. Churches that don't talk about the cross don't talk about hell because they're, they're the same thing. They talk about the same idea. There are the two places God deals decisively with sin. There are the two places God pours out his wrath. He either pours it out on the cross in, in Jesus Christ, or he pours, pours it out on the unrepentant sinner for all time. What is hell? Hell is eternal, conscious, irreversible torment. 
Nobody talked about hell more than Jesus Christ. And every time I talk about this, people go, I don't like it. It's like, you're not supposed to like it, <laughs> right? It's not like, uh, it's a Royal Caribbean cruise ship. You all should want to go. <laughs> it's an all-inclusive resort. You're supposed to read it and go, I would never want to go there. That's the point of it. And that's actually what makes salvation so sweet. You realize that Jesus Christ saved me from an eternity of the wrath of God being poured out on me. A friend of mine, he was, there was someone that wanted to be a member of church and they said, we believe, we believe everything about Christianity except we don't believe in hell. We, we just believe you die and disappear if you don't trust in Christ. And he said, then I want you to hold off becoming a member of this church. I want you to study this. And I want you to look into this. And he said, he said about a couple months later, the guy came back and he said, thank you so much for making me study this. I do believe in hell and it has made salvation so much sweeter to me to realize what, what Christ has saved me from. So, so how does, how do, what does Jesus Christ do at the cross to Satan that we celebrate? Well, let me show you. It actually is clarified. I told you the Bible interprets the Bible. It's clarified in a more specific place in Colossians chapter two. Colossians chapter two, verses 13 to 15. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. Okay, that's classic gospel language. By canceling the record of debt, that's the penalty of sin, that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And then verse 15 is where we hear what he did to Satan. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Here's what he's saying. Satan only has one thing he can use to damn you or destroy you and it's unforgiven sin. It's like what, what, makes, what makes Satan um, powerful to people ultimately? What makes him an ultimate danger? It's that he could, he's able to point to people and go, you are a sinner who has not repented and that's the only thing that he can use to damn you. Once you've trusted Christ, he no longer can damn you or destroy you. Here's what he tries to do, and this is where I think a lot of you are, where I am, is in, because he can't damn you or destroy you, he will try to discourage you all the time. And some of you, it's like, that's your life. It's like, uh, what he does is because it's like, well, what are you gonna do when somebody is uh, born again, they're on their way to heaven, their sins have been forgiven. Their eternal destination is, is secure. They've been given the Holy Spirit. They've been given the word of God. They've been given a ministry. What do you do? You try to discourage them. Some of you are really discouraged. It's like, yeah, your marriage will never change. Yeah, it doesn't make any difference that you're a Christian in your marriage. You'll never break that addiction. You're the only, he'll discourage you in your ministry. You're the only Christian in your workplace. Nobody believes this. You should just stop talking about this. It's like, if you can realize that's what Satan is going to try to do. By the way, this is why there's so many texts in the Bible that says to Christians, encourage one another. Because there is so much discouragement. Finally, he talks about how we celebrate the victory of Christ in the church through a symbol. So first, we, we celebrate his victory over sin, then his victory over Satan, and then how we celebrate it is through a symbol. Let me read this. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection 
of Jesus Christ. You go, well, why is baptism mentioned in here? Uh, Because baptism is the way that you celebrate and proclaim whose side of the spiritual war you are on. In fact, this is interesting. In the old confessions, the oldest Baptist confessions, uh, the early baptisms they would do, if you go back and you read them, they asked the questions like, theirs were longer. We asked basically the two questions, you know, the gospel question, you trust in Christ, the, the, the obedience question, will you go wherever he asks you to go? But a very common thing they would do in baptisms is they would say, do you renounce Satan, the demons, and all of their works? There was actually a moment in the baptismal where you renounced Satan, his works, his ways. So he ends by saying that the way that the war goes forward, the way that the victory of Christ is seen in the church is when new people get baptized. It's like it's so exciting. It's like you were, most of you, I'm guessing, were here last week. It's like when you see that, every time you see somebody go under the water and come back up, what you're seeing is the forward progress of the gospel. Pray for us that we would see more and more baptisms. Pray that you would get to baptize people. It's a goal in our church, a desire in our church, a prayer in our church, that every community group, and we now have 46 community groups, Thank God for last week, Group Connect, what Caleb Dubik and others are doing. We have over 700 people in this church in community groups. What would it look like if your community group just baptized one person this year? There's 15 or 20 of you in the group. If, one of, if, if just one of you guys, you're praying it together for other people. You're praying for your friends. You're praying for your coworkers. You're praying for your neighbors. And if just one group, if we see 46 new people come to faith in Christ, that's the progress, the forward progress of the gospel. Now, what is baptism? Baptism, and I'm going to explain this because it's in the text. Baptism is a symbol and a sign of a spiritual reality. It it makes the uh, invisible visible. It makes the internal external. God loves to teach truth through symbol. You know this. If you read the Bible, it's like circumcision was a symbol. The rainbow was a symbol. Somebody else hijacked that, but that was... God's symbol first. Um, there, you know, the temple was a symbol. Um, it, the Lord's Supper and baptism are symbols. God loves, it's, it's preaching the gospel to the eye. It's like when you see somebody go under the water, it's like what, that's a dramatic picture of I've died with Christ and I'm coming back again. What baptism does, and this is another reason why it talks about it, and in, in the church today, most people don't think a lot about baptism. A lot of times baptism is done sloppily and casually, Baptism should always follow faith. Now, here's what, here's what happens. In the church, there are two, or as you say, in the church in the world, there are two realities that happen that confuse people about baptism. And you've seen these. You've experienced these. You may be in one of these categories. People who are baptized and are not Christians. That's confusing. You don't give the sign of salvation, the sign of belief, to somebody who doesn't believe. That's confusing. And it's actually very confusing to that person as they grow up. Because then they, they don't believe, but they think they believe. Somebody told them they believe. Someone told them they're okay. And the, the other time is, is a Christian who's not been baptized. It's like make, the, the, the call of God on that person is make your faith public. The, it's interesting, the first act that Jesus Christ asked for, he says, I want you to do something public and radical. And if you know in most cultures, baptism is very public and it's very radical. Most Muslim cultures, they don't care if you say you're a Christian. 
Most Buddhist, polytheistic things, they don't care if you just say, fine, I'm going to follow Christ. When they know it's real, when they get angry, is when you decide to get baptized. It's because you're getting up and you're publicly saying it. Now listen, baptism doesn't save you. We know this a couple ways. Uh, we know this because the thief on the cross trusted in Christ, and Christ didn't say to him, today you will be with me in paradise, let me just get some water up here. <laughs> right? So it's like, he says, today you'll be in with me in paradise. So baptism does not save you. We also know this because Paul, this is really interesting, in one of Paul's letters in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, um, he's talking to the church, and he's defending his ministry, and he says, um, he says, uh, he goes, I can't remember who I baptized. I'm paraphrasing, but he goes, I can't remember who I baptized. He goes, I baptized this guy, and I baptized that guy. Oh yeah, and I baptized this guy also. He goes, but Christ didn't send me to baptize. He said, Christ sent me to preach the gospel. If Paul, as zealous as he was for people to be saved, if he thought you had to be baptized, he'd be dragging a tub of water with him everywhere he went, okay? Now, what baptism is, is it's the symbol. Uh, look back at the text of me. Here's what he says. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body. In other words, he's saying it's nothing to do with the physical action. But, he said, here's the key, what the person has done in their heart. But as an appeal, the person in the water, no one gets baptized if they won't confess Christ. Nobody. But as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The, 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 the greatest illustration we have in our culture today is the wedding ring and the vows. If you think about it, the wedding ring is the symbol, uh, but it doesn't make you married, it shows that you're married. Like I've gotten, and I love it, I've done a lot of weddings, um, the main part of a wedding is the vows, are the vows. Um, once a person has said and committed those vows, they are actually married. And normally after that, I say, do you have the rings to seal and symbolize this union? But, but the most important thing has happened, okay? They've already made the vows. The vows is what make you married. But what do we think of people who won't wear their wedding ring? Some of you ladies are like, mm-mm, right? That's right. It's like suspicious. It's like, what's going on? Why does, that guy, why does that guy take his ring off when he goes to the bar? We don't like that. Because it says, well, what, he's still married. Yes. But the point is to show publicly what is true on the inside. And that's what baptism is. So he ends with baptism and he connects it to Noah. Now, why does he do it? Because he says he's writing to a people that need to celebrate in the midst of suffering. So what he does is toward the end, he connects. He says, be public about your faith in water baptism. Know Christ has won the battle, but then know that the time you're living in is much like the time of Noah. Jesus talks about this in Matthew 24. He says this, for as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and they were drinking, they were marrying and they were giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. Verse 39. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So it will be in the coming of the Son of Man. Jesus himself says that the church age will be very much like the time of Noah. That people will make fun of Jesus Christ. People will not think he's going to return. Uh, people will not listen to preaching. People will not respond. And then one day it will happen. Here's what Noah and us, or Noah and them, have in common. Noah and his family were a minority surrounded by a bunch of unbelievers. Same are we today. Noah 
was a godly man trying to live out of his faith in the midst of a world who didn't understand. So are we. Noah witnessed boldly to those around him believing God and talking much about the ark. We want to witness boldly and tell them about the ark that is Jesus Christ, where they can find safety and shelter from God's wrath. Noah realized that judgment was soon to come upon the world. We too need to realize that. That'll be more about that in chapter four. At the time of Noah, God patiently waited for the repentance of unbelievers before he brought judgment. If you're here today and you don't believe, do not take God's patience as God's tolerance for your sin. He says, finally, in one day Noah was finally saved, and one day we will be finally saved. Let's pray. Lord, we want to celebrate. I thank you that in a passage that has some things that are unclear, that is very clear. We want to be a church that is sorrowful, Paul said this, sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Lord, we rejoice in, in how Jesus Christ paid the penalty of sin. We rejoice in how the devil can no longer damn us because he's been ultimately defeated. Lord, I pray if anyone in this room just feels discouraged, they feel discouraged in their marriage, they feel discouraged in their parenting, they feel discouraged in their singleness, they feel discouraged in their ministry, they feel discouraged with their health, Lord, I pray you'd encourage them. And more than that, you'd even bring some Christians from our church around to encourage them, Lord. Lord, I pray if there's anyone in here who needs to, by faith, step forward and be baptized, they would. But I pray for all of us, Lord, that we would realize the call to baptism is a call for all of us to live our faith out publicly. We pray this in your name. Amen.